remain standing as we ask God in prayer. Father in heaven, let us hear of your steadfast love in Christ. For in you we trust. Make us know the way we should go, for to you we lift up our souls. Deliver us from our enemies, O Lord. We have fled to you for refuge. Teach us to do your will, for you are our God. Let your good spirit lead us on level ground. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May now be seated. Our scripture reading uh, for this morning is found in Hosea chapter 8. Hosea chapter 8, and you can find that between the books of Daniel and Joel. I'm not sure what page is that in the pew, um, ESV pew Bible. I didn't get the check. Um, and, but anyways, the last time I preached from Hosea here, it was during the last week of May, and so it's been a while I've been away during the months of June and July doing some uh, chaplain work at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. And so I, I'm grateful to be back sharing the pulpit. And so if you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you. And uh, during the few times I've preached here, I usually like to pick up where I left off from uh, the book of Hosea. And so I know some of you that I talk to are asking, are you going to preach on Hosea next? And I said, Absolutely going to get back on Hosea. Um, such a wonderful book. Um, it's, it's a profound book of mercy, how God could accept the people who do not deserve mercy, um, which is beautifully illustrated that we saw last time in chapter 3, when Hosea uh, buys back his wayward wife, Gomer, uh, a prostitute. And, and so last time we were in chapter 7, um, but now we're in chapter 8. And basically, we've slowly arrived at the heart of this prophetic book um, where the prophet Hosea, just like in chapters 4 through 7, uh, continues to pronounce a, a series of judgment upon Israel, which, as we'll see later, included Judah. And really, it's to know our, our need of hope in the midst of our hopelessness in this book. And so, if you're there already, people of God, hear now God's holy word. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue them. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing ground has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. 
Ephraim has hired lovers, though they hire allies among the nations. I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute, or writhe. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded, regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. As we read the opening of this section in chapter 8, we read the prophet employing in verse 1 a very effective way to grab not only one person's attention, but to grab everyone's attention. Right? We read in verse 1, set the trumpet to your lips. It's as if he's saying, sound the alarm. Stop whatever you're doing. This is not a test. This is an emergency. Have you ever heard that over the intercom? Right? I, I remember back in grade school, every now and then, uh, the school would perform uh, these fire drills so that when a real fire happened, um, we would know what to do. And so we knew the drill, right? We waited for the teacher's instruction. You know, we got, when we heard the bell or the alarm, we got up, we lined up. You know, single file got down low. Teacher says, hurry, 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 right? And we would exit and go to the, the designated place, right, where we should be during a fire drill. And after a number of drills, you know, it, to me and maybe to my other classmates, it didn't feel like an emergency, right? And we, we weren't in any real danger. This is just practice. There wasn't a real, uh, any real sense of urgency, right? They would say, this is just a drill. This is just a test. But the alarm that's being blasted here in Hosea, right? This isn't, this isn't a drill. Right? It's, it isn't a test. It's the real deal. They say, blast the trumpet. Sound the trumpet. Stop whatever you're doing. This is not a test. This is an emergency. And what's the emergency here? Well, we read in verse 1, that imagery here, that one like a vulture or like an eagle is over the house of the Lord. And it's ready to attack. The vulture sees its prey. And who does this vulture represent? Well, it represents Israel's enemy. It's the impending invasion of the Assyrian army. And it's about to happen. And so like the sirens that go off on a military installation, it warns the people that there is an impending attack. Israel is the prey. And Assyria is the predator. 
ready to swoop down and devour its prey at any moment. But why is this happening? Is not the Lord aware of their trouble? Well, the Lord reveals the reason. The Lord pronounces, it's because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. You see that? In verse 3, Israel is guilty because they have spurned, or it could be translated, rejected, rejected the good, in which the ultimate good that they rejected is none other than the covenant Lord, that in Him they are to find His love, mercy, and grace, not only for physical blessing, but spiritual blessing in the covenant, in rela- in the covenant relationship. And yet, what did they do? They rejected him. They, they went after idols. They made holy, unholy alliances. And so now, as a demonstration of the Lord's judgment, he allowed a pagan nation, Assyria, to pursue them and conquer them. And so what was the cause of their downfall? What was the spiritual problem that we see in which we're all prone to commit? The answer is that we are all prone to forget the things that truly matter to God. And what's dangerous is that how often do we forget the Lord? How often do we forget that He has given us His Word and His sacrament, His laws, His promises, His gospel? He has given us all that we need for body and soul in Christ Jesus, beloved. And yet we all know it's easy to claim to know God without really being sincere. It's easy to give lip service to say, well, you know, I know the Lord, right? I know the Lord. I know what it means to be a Christian. You know, I I don't need to be lectured about the Bible, right? I know it. You know, I'm good. But beloved, what do we see in verse 2? The Lord reveals their hypocrisy, right? Israel cries to me saying, my God, we Israel know you. God, we know you. We are your people, right? We're descendants of Abraham. Isn't that what the Jews said? Right? We're descendants of Abraham. We're his people. But in reality, God cannot be fooled by such empty talk, beloved. He knows our hearts more than anyone else because he reveals it in verse 14 that Israel has forgotten me, his maker. And in an earlier chapter, he says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. See that? You know, it's easy for us, you know, to say, Well, you know, you know, I attend church regularly. You know, I can recite the, the creeds and confessions. You know, I hang out with the right crowd. I speak the Christian lingo. But in reality, end up without having true faith. Because in the end, Jesus warns us that on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we know you, right? We did this, we did that in your name, but then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
And so as a result of Israel's rejection, their lack of true love, their lack of true knowledge, they are left to their own devices to seek false security in the things that are temporary and in the things that dishonor God. And beloved, isn't that the same problem we all face today? Right? Where are you seeking wisdom? Where do you find the true knowledge of God? Who do you turn to for the renewing power to truly know God and to be known by Him? I'll give you the short answer. The short answer is that we are to find it in Jesus Christ, beloved. Jesus Christ, who by the power of His Holy Spirit renews the heart, mind, and will. Because we'll see the proper response for all God's people in our passage when sin is exposed is to repent and find hope in Christ alone. Amen. It's in Him who ultimately renews sinners to truly know God in His Word and to be known by Him so that you no longer rely on your own wisdom, so that you no longer rely on your own strength or any worldly power for, you, for your assurance, but to live your life fully resting in, fully trusting in our covenant Lord through Jesus Christ. And so in our passage, what are the dangers in Israel's history of relying on our own knowledge, in our own strength, or in anything that would give us a, a kind of false sense of security, rather than trusting the Lord and why is it dangerous? Well, there are three things, three things that we can think about. Three things. First, the hopelessness of human power. The abomination of false worship. And finally, the transformation of true knowledge. The hopelessness of human power. The abomination of false worship. And finally, the transformation of of true knowledge and first we see the hopelessness of human power and we see that when israel forgot god and abandoned the laws that regulated the national covenant the the inclination of their rebellious heart is to turn their trust towards human strength right according to human standards we see them trust in human powers in several ways First, we see in verse 4, they took it upon themselves to appoint their own kings and appointing their own princes and officials without God's approval. And then second, in verses 7 to 10, uh, not only did they appoint their own corrupt leaders, uh, but they made unholy alliances with the pagan nations. And then finally, in verse 14, they built palaces and fortresses, which was uh, motivated not uh, motivated in trusting their own strength for protection instead of the Lord who was supposed to be their rock and their refuge. So those are the ways the Lord accuses them of trusting in human powers that the Lord did not approve, right? And we'll briefly see how trusting in the human powers led to their uh, destruction. And in verse 4, the prophet says, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. See, this accusation really is an echo of the last chapter in which their desire for choosing uh, their own kings wasn't according to God's standards. No, it wasn't. 
right? It wasn't his divine call for them uh, to initiate. Because if you were to go back and read 2 Kings chapter 14 through 15 uh, for uh, the backdrop of their kings, it was one conspiracy after another to assassinate each king and to replace a new one. And so you can imagine that was a disaster. It was a bloodbath. Their motivation for a king wasn't motivated by following God's standard to have a king who would rule in true justice and righteousness, but by what? Selfish ambition, worldly power. You know, and if Israel, if only Israel remembered their Davidic promise that they should have known that the Davidic king was to come from the tribe of Judah, right? They wouldn't be looking for another king from their tribe. It was the king that the Lord must appoint from the tribe of Judah, right? Not from any other tribe. And because it's from the tribe of Judah where the Messiah would come and rule his people, both Jew and Gentile, as the righteous king. And so, even though today, you know, we're no longer a, a theocratic society, right, where we have priests and kings, uh, you know, that ruled national Israel, but we know that Christ, the head of his new covenant church, right, still has standards for his people. Right? The New Testament has specific standards for local churches when appointing uh, church officers, such as in passages like in 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1. There you see the qualifications of minister, elder, and deacon. And so the Lord takes his standard seriously when calling ministers, elders, and deacons to serve our churches. Because what would happen if someone attempted right, to shepherd Christ's flock apart from his word, right? It's sure to create really all kinds of problems in leadership, isn't it? Especially if they aren't called or if they aren't serving the church faithfully by his word. Because we all know that people in position of power, what happens when, pe- when people are in position of power, right? There, there, there is a tendency to easily abuse power, especially if there's nothing that holds them accountable. And so, beloved, the warning is that if God judges, judges the Israelites for appointing kings and princes because they trusted in human standards, which led to hopelessness, really how much more is God's judgment for rejecting the standard of his complete word that we have today from Genesis to Revelation? especially today in the local church by which church officers must be held accountable by his word, including myself, right? God's standards never changes because God's holy character never changes, beloved. God's holy character never changes. And that's the truth. And that's the truth. But not only do we see uh, the hopelessness of relying on human power in Israel's selection of its corrupt officials, Uh, we see the hopelessness of Israel's trust in foreign nations, right? And how? It's when they form unholy alliances with the pagan nations. We see that in verses 7 to 10. And there Hosea uses this agricultural proverb to illustrate the the futility of forming these alliances. In verse 7, For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It's like that uh, famous saying. What is that famous saying? Uh, you sow what you reap, 
right? You sow what you reap. And if you plant, it's like if you plant good seed, then you reap good fruit, right? And vice versa, if you plant bad seed, you reap what? Bad fruit. And so this cause and effect proverb is a simple picture, yet it powerfully illustrates the reality of Israel's futile actions. Because the alliances that Israel formed with the pagan nations, you know, it's like sowing wind. And what is wind? It's just moving air. It's, it's nothing. It's just wind. To sow the wind is to sow in vain. Because what, because what you reap is what? A whirlwind. A whirlwind, which not only is moving air, but it is a destructive wind. Proverbs 1 Chapter 127 depicts a whirlwind like a calamity. And so in Israel's efforts in trying to form these alliances, they end up what? They end up reaping destruction like the whirlwind. And what other imagery does the prophet reveal? In verse 7, the standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield strangers, if it were to yield, strangers would devour it. In verse 8, Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. So you see there, just like the crops, right? The crops that ended up yielding nothing. You know, whatever Israel invested in forming alliances, they will reap no benefit, the Lord says. They will reap no benefit, right? They only, the only, really, the return of investment is to be devoured and to be swallowed up. And what's absurd is that in verse 9, is that Israel has, if you look at there, has even gone up to Assyria to form an alliance. They formed alliance with Assyria. You know, and this is probably the reference to that, the last northern king, uh, King Hosea, not Hosea, but King Hosea, uh, for paying the tribute to the Assyrian king uh, with the tribute. And he did it probably for personal gain, Right? You know, by this time, Israel was already corrupt, severely corrupt, and so was this last king in Israel. Yet he was blind by the fact that Assyria, right, that same pagan nation, would soon capture Israel in 722 AD during Hosea's last years of rule. So Israel in verse 9 is described, what else does he describe? A wild donkey wandering alone. And the Lord accuses them in verse 10, Ephraim has hired lovers. And though Israel hired allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. But he doesn't, if you notice, he doesn't gather them up to make peace, but to what? To execute judgment. And so that's the futility of their efforts. That's the hopelessness of Israel's trust and foreign alliances. And then the final aspect of the hopelessness of human power is that Israel trusted in their heavily fortified cities instead of trusting the Lord to protect them. In verse 14, the prophet reveals Israel built many palaces. But then not only Israel is exposed, but we see that Judah is also exposed. Judah in the south, Judah too had trusted in their own strength with its multiple fortified cities. But in reality... You know, just how strong did they hold up against the Lord's wrath? Not very well. Not very well. We see because the Lord says in verse 14, I will send a fire upon his cities 
and it shall devour her strongholds. So, beloved, no matter what human power you muster up to try to go against God, in reality, you will always fail. It's useless to go against a God in whom your very existence depends upon. In fact, all creatures can only live, move, and have their being only by God's sustaining power. Only by His sustaining power. And so, beloved, as humans, we are powerless compared to a powerful God. We are powerless. And so not only do we see Israel's uh, misplaced trust in human power and the futility and hopelessness it brings, but we also see Israel's uh, judge for their false worship, which is, that's our second main point, the abomination of false worship. Abomination of false worship. And we see two aspects of false worship. First, in verses 46, we see they made idols out of what? silver and gold and worship them as their god and then in verses 11 to 13 they performed these the rituals of worship which to god were what empty and unacceptable empty and unacceptable and so first in verses 4 to 6 we see that with their silver and gold they made idols and the lord's response is i have spurned your calf right i have rejected the calf idol The same way that you have spurned my good. See how the Lord reverses that. You've traded me over this dead idol that cannot talk, that is dead, that is not living. That this calf idol that you made out of silver and gold is your own doing. Right? You can't blame anybody else for that idol that you've made. You are responsible for producing it, the Lord says. And so this wasn't the first time that Israel erected a calf idol, right? It's even similar to an earlier version when Aaron erected a golden calf back in Exodus chapter 32. And and you know what? Each time uh, the calf idol was erected, the leaders of Israel would say, this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is your God. But the Lord makes it clear to his people in verse 6. It is not God, for it is from Israel a craftsman made it. And so in the same way, beloved, the making of our own idols continues to be an ancient problem of the heart, isn't it? Right? And I like how one Christian counselor explains modern idolatry, which is worth quoting at length. I'll read it. We may not erect statues of wood or stone and bow down to them, but we will still place our trust in ourselves or in money or in things we feel we have control over to rescue us from our troubles. When we look to material things to comfort us in the stresses of life, when we look to our work to give our life meaning and purpose, when we look to other people or experience for fulfillment, in all these ways and more, when we drink from the well of idolatry, we are always left thirsty. I like that. When we drink from the well of idolatry, we are always left thirsty. That's well said. That's so true. For no idol can satisfy hearts that were designed to love and worship God alone. And so, beloved, our natural inclination to worship is either going to be 
you know, the true God in the way he has instructed us to worship him or in other things that we often turn into idols in our hearts. And the consequence for idol making any way, in any way or worshiping in any way that he has not told us in his word only leads to what? Destruction. Destruction. The Lord, the Lord warns Israel, it's for your own destruction. Right? In verse 5, I have spurned your calf. I have rejected your calf. In the same way that Israel has spurned the ultimate good found in the Lord. The Lord says, my anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. And so, beloved, we are to worship the true God alone in the way he has revealed himself in his word. And we are to rid, to take rid of our idols. For God is a jealous God and his anger burns against them. That's the warning for us all. And yet the only way, beloved, for true worship to be really truthful and and, and genuine is what the scriptures say is, is that we find that in Jesus Christ, right? The living waters, the living waters of eternal life who can truly satisfy the soul and transforms us to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But not only does the Lord expect from his people true worship by forsaking idols and worshiping according to truth, right? He, he desires worship to be truly sincere from the heart. And we find that the Lord judges them because their worship was also empty. In verse 11, we read, Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. And so even if all the right steps of Israel's worship were performed, even if you did all the right things in worship, their heart was far from God. Their heart was far from God. The sacrificial rituals were never meant, you know, they were never meant to be ritualistic nor as a means uh, to keep on sinning because it's there. Because it was just simply a ritual. But in reality, it was meant, it was intended to move the heart, mind, and will to love God and to seek His mercy. And we saw that the Lord said earlier in Hosea, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so the question for us is, you know, what is the condition of our hearts even in the midst of right worship? Right? Do we generally desire steadfast love and and being renewed with the knowledge of God? Or, Or are you just going through the motions? Is it just a mere performance to sing psalms or to recite creeds and confessions, to pray, to hear a sermon from God, to hear a word from God? Or is it generally heartfelt devotion? That's what the Lord is seeking. Tragically for Israel, it was merely a performance, right? It was a means to keep on sinning, thinking that grace may abound and God can overlook sin. But you know what? The Lord says in verse 13, as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. And in verse 12, 
even if I were to write, the Lord tells them, even if I were to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. Right? They wouldn't even comprehend it. They would say, what is that? You know? But finally, as a consequence, at the end of verse 13, the Lord does not overlook sin, but he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. In other words, you will be punished by returning to that uh, same state of bondage like Egypt, but now with the Assyrian army ready to invade because of your unfaithfulness. And so again, it causes us to examine ourselves in light of Israel's failures that the consequences of rejecting God are very real, brothers and sisters. We ask, what has caused this tragedy for them to fall from being recognized by the Lord? Right? What, what caused them to fall from being recognized by the Lord as, you are my people, Right? You are my people because I have delivered you from Egypt to now here in Hosea chapter 8 in which basically essentially saying, you are not my people, I am not your God. And why? What's the cause? Well, I think the root of it, which is so often the case, right, not only for national Israel, but for God's people today, is like I said in the beginning, is that we forget God. We forget God. We are forgetful people, myself included. And in verse 14, the Lord reveals the reason for judgment. It's because Israel has forgotten his maker, right? Israel has forgotten me. And his people today are also prone to wander and and forget God and turn to other worthless idols. And so, beloved, what do we need? What do we need? We need to be transformed by true, the true knowledge of God so that we may be known by God. And that's our last point in which we need. The transformation of true knowledge. The transformation of true knowledge. And how can we obtain the transformation of true knowledge? The solution is to turn to the one who has the power to renew our heart, mind, and will. Right To know Him, to love Him through His Word by the power of His Holy Spirit. And beloved, who grants that power? Who grants that power? What's always the answer in Sunday school, right? Jesus. Jesus Christ grants that power. In Christ alone, it's in Him who is our wisdom, who is our motivation to live a life pleasing to God in the way we should worship, in the way we honor Him, in the way we love others. And so let us not trust in our own wisdom. Let us turn to God in Christ Jesus. Let us seek the true knowledge that God has revealed to us in His Holy Word. And when His law exposes our sin and guilt, what do we do? May we be driven to repent. May we be driven to Christ to find mercy in Him, to know Christ, to find rest in Him, knowing that He has upheld every standard that is required of us the God-man who paid the ultimate curse so that now we who trust in Him could always trust the good and never spurn the good, which is in the gospel. The gospel which motivates us to do what pleases God. Because even though the prophet drives the conviction home that his people are hopeless without God, 
He declares us innocent and righteous only in the person of Christ by faith alone. The Davidic king who promised to betroth us to himself in righteousness, justice, steadfast love, and mercy. And so finally, in closing, so that now, by the Spirit's work in uniting us more and more to Christ, we live trusting, you know, not in human power, not in vain idols or empty worship, but in the Lord who promised us in Hosea chapter 2. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know me the Lord. And so, beloved, with that last said, may we trust in his promise, knowing that he is faithful forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. And I'll be using again that wonderful prayer from Calvin after this section. Father, grant grant Almighty God that you may continue to daily restore us to yourself, both by your loving discipline and by your word, even though we do not stop to go astray after sinful desires. And so, Father, grant that by the direction of your spirit, we may at length return to you, that we may never after that fall away, but be preserved in pure and true obedience, and that we may constantly continue in the pure worship of your majesty and in the true obedience of your word, and that after this life has passed, may we at at last reach that blessed rest which is reserved for us in heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.